Usually on weekends, I play long form audio of something that I've done. But I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick of my own voice. And so I want to shake it up a little bit. Let me know if you have ideas. But today I felt like I watched a really good talk and I figured I would just share the audio of that talk. Obviously, it's not mine. I don't claim any copyright over it. I just really want you to hear it because I think it's really good. The talk is Hilal Wayne, who it goes by Hilalogram on Twitter. And he just does, I'm just generally a fan of a lot of the things that he does, except for TLA. <laughs> uh, but he has this kick of being precise where other people are vague. And this is a rare trait uh, for software engineers. So this talk is specifically about empirical software engineering and specifically titled What We Know We Don't Know. I'm going to save you the effort and actually give you the bottom line up front, which is that we actually don't know a lot of things that we as software engineers commonly hold to be true, like clean code, like test-driven development, like functional languages, like coding without abbreviations. All of these things have been tested and came out inconclusive. So to what extent do we practice software engineering without actually having any evidence for, <laughs> for what that is beyond just a belief? Beliefs are fine, but obviously data is better. And the data that we have is very preciously little. What he actually does try to conclude, because it's easy to say that nothing is proven and everything, everything is just meaningless. What he does end with, which is still worthwhile, is that there are a few, there's a small set of things that we do know works, which are testing, um, adding tests generally improves code quality, um, code review, which is reviewing each other's code, because generally there's this effect where if you review something that you haven't done, you tend to be more available to spot mistakes. This is something I experienced in my own life. And also just general uh, known qualities of knowledge work, which is having better sleep, having lower stress, and not working too many hours. I also thought this talk was really well delivered, so I'll come back at the end and talk a little bit about his talk style. Enjoy. Okay, great. So I actually want to start us off with an exercise. Imagine you're looking at a function, and it's 40 lines long, a pretty long function. And you can break it down into, say, four 10-line functions taking a big function and making some smaller functions. So exercise one, raise your hand if you think that the small functions will be easier to work with than the big functions. Cool, I see most of you raised your hands. Cool, put them down. Yeah, on average. Okay, so question number two, it's flu season. Raise your hand if you think that a vaccine prevents diseases. Thank God, I think that's everybody. Don't have to kick anyone out. So, last question. Raise your hand if you think it is more likely, if you believe more strongly that small functions are easier than you believe that vaccines prevent diseases. Sorry, what was that? Raise your hand if you are more confident in your belief that small functions are good than that vaccines prevent diseases. And I see a couple of very brave souls have raised their hands. But almost everybody else who raised their hands for both times put it down. Why is that? Why can we believe two things, confident two things, but believe one more? Well, for vaccines, we have, we've got medical studies. We have historical data. We have the elimination of smallpox. We have clinical trials. We just have so much. But for small versus big functions, we have a feeling, an experience, our opinions. 
and we might have some logic. Like, it's obvious that small functions are easier. But then again, it also sounds obvious that injecting a virus into your veins isn't going to make you healthier, right? Our logic can often be flawed. Now, this talk is not about small versus big functions. I'm not telling you to write big functions. This talk is not called write big functions. But I do want to underscore some really important point. Almost everything in software is a belief. It is something we have experience about, it is something we have opinions on, but it's not something we have hard data. In most cases, we just don't know. But we can find out. We find out through empirical engineering, or ESE for short. That is the science of taking claims about software and dissecting them, testing them, observing them to find out what's really true and what just feels good. My name is Hillel Wayne, and I'm here to talk to you about what this is, how we do it, and why it's so important, and some of the things we've learned on the way. But first, some bookkeeping. I'm going to be name dropping about 35 different studies in this talk. You don't have to write them down. If you go to this link, I have every single one online annotated and linked. You can just go there and find them and look at them that way. Also, every question being asked through the app, I will be answering. If I don't get to it in this time, I will be also uploading all the answers to that link too. So you'll be able to see every question people asked and the researched answers there. And with that, we're ready to begin. So I think the first question we have to ask is why? Why do we care about this? Why is it so important to be empirical? And I see three reasons. The first one is the easy one. I'm a developer. I want to get better. I want to know what works and what just feels good. By studying empirically, I can find that out. But that's probably not that convincing to any of you, right? I mean, it's one thing to sort of have a moralistic argument of, oh, we should be better, but quite different to actually do something. The other re next reason I see that's important is financial. The tech industry makes up about 10% of the United States GDP. That's $1.5 trillion a year. If we are 1%, and that's really low estimate, 1% inefficient, that's the GDP of Iceland we are setting on fire every single year. But that's at the large scale. That's not local to us. And here's what I think is the most important, the most subtle, but most valuable reason to study the empiricism of software. We do it to protect ourselves. You see, the most common, most popular paradigm in software is charisma-driven development. There are experts who are good at speaking, who are good at writing, and they tell us what we should be doing. Maybe we do Scrum because it works for our company. Maybe we do it because that's what everyone else is doing. Maybe we need a big data cluster to crunch our gigabytes of data. Maybe we're just following Google's lead. Maybe we do object-oriented practices because that's correct. Or maybe it is because people stand on conference stages and say, you must use solid. But ESC, empirical engineering, just cuts all of that away. It's what helps us distinguish what's fact from what just a salesman is telling us. Empirical engineering is what tells us that well, a 2014 MacBook Pro can crunch 50 gigabytes of data 100 times faster than a 100-server Spark cluster. It tells us that experts separated by hundreds of miles writing the same kinds of problem will make the same mistakes in the same places. With, I'm sorry, is that like part, is that, 
is that something we can like sort of hide? Okay. Okay, yeah. So fundamentally, okay, yeah, I'll just ignore it from now on. So fundamentally, the reason we study ESC is to protect ourselves from the thought leaders and the predators. But doing so is very, very hard. It's complicated to study. People are complicated. We're studying people, and people are more complex than atoms. I mean, take that original question I asked. Are small functions easier than big functions? Well, how do we even define better? Do we define it with a code metric, like cyclomatic complexity? Some people do, and some people do studies that find that's the case. But that's just pushing the question back. How do we know that cyclomatic complexity is better? We don't. Instead, we can find maybe a more goal-oriented result. We say better means, well, the code is easier to read, or easier to modify, or easier to debug. That makes sense to everyone? Cool. And turns out that we have not that many studies on whether clean code is actually easier to read. And I have looked. I've looked pretty dang hard about this. And I was only able to find a couple of studies that actually studied this. And they both said the same thing. Small functions are easier to read, easier to modify, and much, much harder to debug. So the evidence is mixed. Then again, those are small sample sizes with lots of caveats. And well, look, people are complicated. So complicated, we're doing such complicated things that some engineers think this is impossible. We cannot study ourselves. We cannot get hard data on what we do. And in doing so, we made a mistake that a lot of engineers make, a lot of smart people too. Because we don't know how to do something, it can't be done. But just as people are very smart, they're also very clever. And there are people who, just as we've put our lives into building complicated systems, have put their lives into studying us. So I want to give an example of what this looks like. There are many different kinds of research we do. I'm going to break them down into three kinds, quantitative, qualitative, and code mining. In terms of what research actually looks like, this is one of my favorite papers ever. I know it looks small, but it's, well, it's four, page, four um, pages to a sheet, double-sided, so it's actually about 40 pages in total. This amazing paper is called Fixing Faults in C and Java Source Code, Abbreviated versus Forward Identifier Names. Yeah, not the most exciting title. And it's a pretty small topic, too. What makes it interesting? It's interesting because it shows perfectly how we do research and why it matters. Let's take a simple example. I have a, I have a code base, and one of the variable names is employer number. Okay, Descriptive name, descriptive title, great. Is it easier to debug this versus debug this, EMP num? Easier to read the code, easier to find faults, whatnot. So, this is what they did. They wanted to study which of these would be easier to work with. And what they were doing is called a qualitative, a quantitative study. That's what we most commonly think of as science. We have two groups, a control group and a modified group. Control group we do not touch. Modified group we make some tweak to. Then we have them both do a task and see which one does it better. In this case, the control group was debugging code and the other group was debugging code where all of the full names were replaced with abbreviations. Then we can see which one does it better, and then we can know which one's better. Now, I see some of you looking skeptical. And you'd be right. There's lots of what we call confounding factors, things that can 
explain our results without our fundamental premise being measured. For example, experience. Maybe one group did a better job because they all have 10 years more experience. There might also be alternate explanations. Maybe this only matters when you're working with assembly, and if you're working in Python, the difference changes. There are a lot of different confounding variables that can ruin an experiment if we aren't careful. And if we know them, we can design our experiment to control for them, make sure they don't matter, make sure they don't affect the results. But you have to think of them in advance. So they did. They tried to figure out what could possibly give alternate explanations for whatever they were seeing. And I'd actually like to make this a quick demo, a quick exercise. Take 30 seconds, think down, write down, I don't know, maybe ask the person next to you if you really want to. Try to come up with possible confounding factors, things that might explain the results besides just that. Give you all 30 seconds. Everybody back, eyes back on me? Great. Everybody thought of, has everybody thought of some things? How many people got like one thing? How many got like two to four? How many got five? Six? Let me read all the things that they found, and you can compare it to your list. Experience level of the developers. Education level of the developers. Programming language used. Size of the code base studied. Density of bugs in the code base. Formatting of the code. Classification of bug. Time of day. Fatigue level. Problem domain. Sample size. Experience with the problem. Social media exposure. How many of those did you miss? Yeah. For the record, they didn't find any difference. So it turns out that while we know that descriptive names are really important, there's no evidence that a full word is required when an abbreviation can fit in. And this was only over 100 people, so it's not 100% validated, but it does show we can study something and get real results about what matters. Who here finds that result surprising? Well, so did they. It doesn't really make intuitive sense that a code base, that EMP num, is going to be no harder than employee number, right? See, quantitative studies are science, but they're not enough. We also need qualitative studies. This is the studies of people's experiences, of their opinions, of their ideas, how they flow. It is the exploration part of science. It's how we get the ideas we want to test in the first place. We need to explore. So they explored. They did what's called an ethnography. They sat down and watched developers debug code in the real world with no sort of controls, no suggestions, just watched them. And they saw that the two groups had different ways of debugging. When you have the full word identifiers, people tended to skim. They used the name as an anchoring point, lexicography, to orient themselves around the code and quickly jump between where they thought the bugs might be. This worked as a debugging technique. The people who had abbreviations, though, 
they more methodically went top down, understanding the context and the full flow of the code. This also worked. So changing the names did subtly change how people debugged code. But in both cases, there was advantages and disadvantages. They both worked. Qualitative studies let us actually know what it is we're seeing, what is interesting, what we want to explore. Now, both of these studies, these clinical trials, these ethnographies, are about people. And people are tricky to study. Something that's easier to study, though, is code, right? It just sits there. It's not going to change on us. It's not going to be tired or sleep deprived. And code also has one, bigger, one big advantage. It scales. If I asked you, average code base, what's the unit testing coverage? How would you find that out? Anybody want to make, raise your hand, anyone? Yep. Yeah, but where do you get the M code? So the question becomes, how do we, I'll just go ahead. I, I think you have the right um, track here. So I mean, we can write an anal a code that analyzes like our code base to find the unit testing coverage. But how do we get enough samples? How do we know the average? Well, there's 100 million repositories on GitHub. We just download them all, crunch the data, done. Problem solved. And this does work. Here's another study that was done similar to this on code smells. These were people who looked at 30 open source projects, each of which had been around for over a decade, and studied what the anti-patterns were, what they did wrong, and where the defects in the code were based on what was changed. Their results were twofold. One was that, yes, if there are code smells, the code is more likely to be buggy in that area. That's probably obvious to a lot of us. The second thing that they found, and this is a little bit more surprising, is that fixing the anti-patterns did nothing to the bugs. It turns out the two were correlated. Certain kinds of code led to more poorly designed, low-quality code and more bugs, but they were independent. Fixing one didn't affect the other. So this means that we can use code smells to isolate where we should be looking for bugs. But we can't fix the bugs by just fixing the code smells. We have to actually figure out what the bug itself is. This is an example of how we can use code mining to very quickly and efficiently get insights into how things work. But code mining, just as it's very effective, has traps of its own. You see, it's not a controlled environment. We're looking at the field, we're looking at the world. And that makes for very complicated, noisy data. And we have to be very careful about that. Who's heard of this paper? Came out in 2017, a large-scale study of programming languages and code quality in GitHub. See a few of you, because it was a pretty um, momentous study. It was the first, it analyzed about 100 million lines of, on GitHub. And it was the first study that showed clear statistical significance between different kinds of programming languages. Using commits and bug fixing commits, they found that functionally programming languages were safer than imperative languages. Static typed languages had fewer bugs than dynamic typed languages. Manual memory languages were buggier than controlled garbage collected languages. This came out a couple years ago, and while the spec was, was small, it was hailed as one of the best evidences for the importance of programming language. Now, there's one more part of this entire process that I have neglected to tell you. We don't trust papers. A paper is interesting, it's insightful, but it's not trustworthy. People, researchers make mistakes too. In order to 
see a paper and actually benefit from it, we have to do what's called a replication. We have to get another group to do the same experiment and see if they get the same results. That makes us more confident. The study on naming was done, replicated several times successfully. As far as we can tell, that's a pretty consistent evidence. This, though, just this year we tried to replicate this. A group tried to analyze the same repositories and get the same results. And in doing so, they found a small problem. You see this, imagine you have a commit that looks like this, add and fix operator. The other group was flagging it as a bug because it had the word fix in it. In all, about one third of the commits they studied were false positives. Once this was accounted for, every single difference went away. They could not find any evidence that one language was better than any other language. Doesn't mean it's not true, it just means you don't have evidence yet. So code mining can be very effective and get us really deep insights, but we have to be careful. We have to make sure that what we're doing actually makes sense. Now, something interesting about all of this that I've just been sharing, you might be noticing a pattern. I've named several things that we think are matter, programming language, how we name our things, how we look at code smells, all that stuff, and none of them seem to have a really strong effect, right? Abbreviation's totally fine. Code smells don't actually really identify bugs. It turns out that this talk is what we know we don't know, and we know we don't know pretty much anything. See, software engineering is a very, very young field. Some of the founders are still alive today. It's a field about systems, and any system is going to be complicated. Any system is going to have some things that are obvious and false, and some things that are insane and totally correct. We don't know. That doesn't stop us from programming. We can still build pretty incredible stuff. Just as humans are complicated and clever, we're really good at doing things in uncertain situations. So we don't know the answers, and that's okay. But just as we don't know the answers, nobody else does either. And that's what it comes back to. So many people tell us, here is how you must code. There are the people who tell us, you must use Agile. But they don't know. They're just saying that. They just believe that. There are the people who say, Agile is a waste of time. They don't know that. They just believe it. They're just saying that. And that's the key here. We don't actually know anything. Nobody does. And that means anybody who's certain about what is and isn't true about software is probably wrong and probably trying to sell you something. We have to be methodical. We have to understand the limits of our field and learn how to push them. We have to be careful and methodical and explore. In short, we need to understand. Now, I've shared some things that don't work. Most things don't work. But there are some things that we've studied that we are pretty sure make a difference. We have done many experiments in many contexts, and they've all found significant, persistent, positive or negative effects. I'd like to share some of you with this to show you that there is some hope here. I'm going to also focus on the field that matters most to me. I do what's called formal verification, the study of making programs provably correct. Unfortunately, that's not been studied by anyone, so complete waste of time. But one thing that has been pretty heavily studied is defect finding, software defects. How do we know where the bugs are in our code? And second, how do, you, how do we prevent bugs in the first place? That's what I'd like to talk about, these two categories and what we've learned about them. So first question, how do we find bugs? I've already shared one thing that works, identifying code smells and seeing where they are. 
helps us trace down where the bugs are. But that's probably not enough for most people. We want an automated tool that helps us more carefully, more accurately identify code. That led to an explosion of code measuring techniques. Who here has heard of cyclomatic complexity? Who's here has heard of function points? Clean code? Most people, these are techniques people try to use to measure the quality of software. And maybe they work, but in terms of finding where bugs are most likely to be in code, there was one technique that works much better than all of them. Lines of code. More lines, more bugs. Now, you might feel cheated by this because, again, we want an automated tool that we can point at our code and find where the bugs are. Lines of code doesn't help us. Just saying there's a thousand lines, probably a bug somewhere in there, just doesn't really do anything for us. And as far as we can tell, there just really isn't a way to just look at a code base and find where we can find the bugs. So we don't look at the code base. Instead, we mine the org chart. You might have heard of Conway's law. Code reflects the organization that produced it. And it turns out that is empirically true in both positive ways and negative ways. If you have code, if you have a system in the organization, a function of the organization that is cross-cutting and complicated, the code for that system is going to probably be buggy. This has been empirically verified. If you have a lot of different people that touch a code base, it is more likely to be buggy. If you have a lot of different groups that touch a code base, it is more likely to be buggy. Not in the rate of change, but in the rate of types of change. And this is a pretty consistent, persistent effect. So it's not necessarily a technical thing that we look at, but the social thing, our hierarchies, our VCS, our git blame, that help us identify where the bugs are going to be. That's though in the general case. In the specific case, we know that in certain contexts, it's easier to find bugs. For example, in a distributed system, about nine out of every 10 critical bugs that crash the entire distributed system are either uncaught exceptions, you know, the kind you find with the unit test, or configuration errors. So if you look at those two things, you'll cut out maybe 90% of your crashes. We also know from some surveys that about half of the worst bugs that take the longest to fix are requirement or design issues. So if you just sit down and draw your decision table before you start coding, you'll probably save your company a few hundred thousand dollars. But that's all in the finding of bugs. Ideally, we don't want bugs in the first place, right? That's harder. There's a lot of things we've studied on this, and most of them seem like they work and seem to work in practice for us. But when we put them to the test, they just fall apart. Take, I don't know, test-driven development. Now, I'm gonna be very clear here. Testing is great. Everybody thinks testing is great. In fact, it's so great that it's almost impossible to find studies on it. It's what's called a parachute study, something so obvious nobody bothers to study it. This term comes from medicine. Well, there's no double-blind studies showing that parachutes save lives, so how do we know? For the record, I did spend about three days hunting down really old studies, and they all agree that yes, testing has an overwhelming benefit. Keep writing your tests. The question, though, is does test-driven development work better? Who here knows what test-driven development is? Ah, great, most of you. For the, for the people who don't, it's a very tight cycle where you first write a failing test, then write the code that passes the test, then refactor. It's really widely lauded. A lot of people really love it. 
I personally love it. I do it all the time. I recommend my friends do it. But does it actually make a difference? Well, we have one study saying yes. This came out in 2006. It was the first long-term study on tester development. It found that it did reduce defects, but also added about 20% more testing time to your system, which made the effects kind of uncertain. Maybe it was the TTD. Maybe it was just we spent more time testing. We've done a lot of follow-up studies since then, and as far as we can tell, no, there's really not a difference. It doesn't make a difference that much to quality either. As far as we can tell, test-driven development is no better or worse than any other disciplined controlled testing technique. This is personally a huge bummer to me because I, as I said, love doing it, and it's kind of frustrating to know that this thing that I know helps me probably doesn't work. But that's being what empirical means. It means accepting the results, accepting the data, even if we don't see that, even if we don't like the data. And it turns out pretty much every other technique we've studied, pair programming, type systems, et cetera, don't really have that much effect either. They feel like they help, they probably don't. Except for one technical practice. There is one technical practice that we've studied again and again, and know for certain not just finds and removes bugs, but is dramatically effective at doing so. Code review. Now, there are some caveats here. You can't review that much at a time. You can't review that many lines of code at a time. But in those constraints, the effect is absolutely enormous. Most of the rigorous studies I've seen on this say it finds about 60 to 80% of all the bugs in the code. And even better than that, that's the secondary effect. It turns out that only one out of every four comments that basically block the code significant software defects is about functionality. The other three are about code quality. So very roughly, for every bug it finds, which is again about 60 to 80% of all of the bugs, it finds about three situations where we can just make the code better, more maintainable, spread knowledge, share knowledge. Code review is simply fantastic. And no other technical practice comes close, not pairing, not TDD, not testing in general, not, types, not even like formal proofs, to be honest. These are still great things, and I still recommend doing them, but far and away, TDD is the one technical practice we are absolutely 100% certain is effective. Nothing else comes close to code review. Um, at the end. I said, though, technical practice for a reason. We haven't studied software engineers as much as we really should have, as I've made clear. But we have studied knowledge workers in general. We've studied them for 100 years. And we know, without a doubt, that there are three things that have a profound impact on the output of any possible knowledge worker, any possible manual laborer, anyone doing anything. Sleep deprivation, stress levels, and hours worked. And these effects are absolutely enormous. An unstressed, well-rested, not overworked team that is happy at its job will produce orders of magnitude better code, better output, better systems than otherwise. As just one example of one of the few cases we've studied software engineers in this context, this was a study about what happens if you skip a night of sleep. One night. So you know your hackathon, what you're doing at the end of the hackathon instead of at the beginning of the hackathon. And if you skip one hour of sleep, if you skip one night of sleep, 
for the first hour of coding after that, just the first hour on simple tasks, you're about half as productive. Also, other studies show that if you miss about a week of two hours of sleep a night, you're basically about as bad off as a person who skipped an entire night of sleep. So chronic sleep deprivation can be just as bad. Also, also, it turns out that when you are sleep deprived, you can't tell your work is worse. So if your team is sleep deprived, there is literally nothing you can do to make up for that. No practice will make your code any better than they would make if they were well rested. And well, it's not just sleep. I mentioned also time worked and hours worked, right? And stress. One of my favorite studies that's come out recently is the Game of Sutra study on game developers. They interviewed 700 game developers on 700 separate teams. And we know that down to 270 different code bases, 270 different games. And among other things, they found that when a team entered crunch mode, that is, overworked to get a game done in time, they produced games that were worse on every single metric. Reviewer scores, profitability, user satisfaction sales, everything, than the teams that simply cut scope or push their deadlines. Those groups were burning more time and money, not to mention the health and safety of the developers, on a worse outcome. So the question. You've probably heard that correctness, you should be doing testing or review or pairing. Why haven't you heard about sleep? Why haven't you heard about stress levels for correctness? A lot of reasons, to be honest. Because these are long-term subtle effects, as opposed to short-term ones. Because they are diffuse and insidious. Because it's very hard to trace them back to their source. And because it's not in our control. Things like stress and sleep are a product of things like Deadlines, scope creep, bad managers, bad company culture. Things that are organization level, social, not technical. You see, there are some things that us engineers can do that will improve our code, like code review. But ultimately at its core, software engineering is knowledge work. It's about us putting our minds to the best use we can. And I find that beautiful. It really exalts what it is that humans can do. But at the same time, it means that anything that impairs our ability to think is going to cause much worse effects than anything else can. So yes, if we want higher quality, we need to do our code review. We need to be careful. But if we really want high quality and high productivity, well, that can't be demanded of engineers. It has to be enforced at the organization. The change must come from the top. Now, that is just software engineering, just empirical engineering in software defects. There's other fields we've studied too, education, human-computer interfaces, performance, all that stuff. I shared software defect because that's what matters most to me. I don't know what matters most to you. Maybe it's something else. All I can do is encourage you to look for yourself, encourage you that this is even worth looking at in the first place. Hopefully, I've done a little, at least a little bit of that. Hopefully, I've convinced you of the value here. If so, I'd like to end by talking about where we can get started. What's the best introduction to both doing the research and finding it? So there's two books I definitely strongly recommend. The first is Making Software. This is how I got into it. The first half is about the practice of research, how we do the research, the pitfalls, everything. The second half is the things we've learned. This book is absolutely fantastic. I reread it once a year. If any of you have a Safari subscription, it's free online there too. 
They also have a site, neverworkintheory.org, which has high-quality open-source research. I'd also recommend reading that. Other book is a counterpoint, The Leprechauns of Software Engineering. This is by a person, Laurent Bosevi, who is skeptical of the idea of empirical engineering. Obviously, I disagree with him on that. But what he does in this book is show how it is that people misinterpret research, how claims turn into urban legends. So it is a very good book for learning the methodology of evaluating research. That's mostly about how we do research. In terms of finding it, that's a trickier problem. Who here has heard of the academia industrial complex? Hmm. Basically, it goes like this. Almost all research is done by universities. Universities have their stuff published in scientific journals. To read a scientific journal, you have to pay either $30 per article or belong to an organization that pays $10,000 a year for access. I'm guessing most of you aren't in that, so you can find the paper, you can read the abstract, you can't actually read the paper. There are a few ways around this, though. If you have an ACM digital membership, that's about $100 a year. You can read all of the memberships in their system. If you go to this place called the Archive, a lot of scientists in protest and rebellion of the system upload their preprints there. If you go to the scientist's actual website, they probably have their stuff hosted there, too. If you email the scientist, they'll happily share it. But by far the most efficient, most effective, and easiest way is to use Sci-Hub, S-C-I-H-U-B. If you put in a paper into the site, it will just immediately give you the entire article. No problems, no questions asked. The problem is I can't actually recommend this because it's incredibly fast and convenient and workable and has great UI, but it's also a little bit illegal because, you know, copyright rulings. So you really, you're really supposed to, you know, if you want to be really moral about this, you kind of have to pay the $30 per paper. So um, definitely don't go to that website. <laughs> definitely avoid it all you can. And don't go to their, and don't like follow them on Twitter. Just don't. So in conclusion, software engineering, very powerful, very difficult, but it helps us distinguish what is correct from what we believe and what is useful from what is either negative or uncertain. It's great for, I guess, humility and actually improving and protecting ourselves. Now, a couple of things to wrap up really quickly. First, as mentioned, you can go to this site and you can see all the references. You can also read the references for yourself. And I would recommend that. Everything I've shared has been colored by my opinions, how I see the world, my own biases. Maybe when you read it, you'll come up with something different. Maybe you'll think it's correct. Maybe you'll think it's garbage. I do recommend, though, checking for yourself because you should see for yourself what the research says and not just trust a person on the stage selling their consult shilling their consulting business. Speaking of shilling, I'd like to end by clearly talking about what I do. I work in a field called formal methods. That is sort of the art and science of producing large-scale bug-free designs, essentially software blueprints. I teach workshops and consult for companies. Clients have included Netflix, Cigna, Protocol Labs, Scality, MediaMath. So far, they seem pretty satisfied with me, so probably a good sign. If you're interested in this, just either go to the site or come talk to me after. I'll happily answer any questions on what I do and how it works. And of course, you're always welcome for the rest of the conference to ask me any questions you have about empirical engineering. And with that, my name is Hill Wayne, and thank you for listening to my talk.
Okay, so that was the talk that you just heard. I already gave you the summary up front. So if you need a summary, you can go back up. You should also check out the show notes or his link where he actually lays out the scientific references to every single paper that he quotes. And I think that's probably a far better use of time than clicking through links of some Twitter thought leader. The main thing I wanted to focus on in this section was really just the style of his talks, which I thought was really well delivered. So the first thing that you may not have noticed as a listener was that he was completely off script and off the cuff. So he did not have any script to refer to, and he just stood there and talked about whatever he wanted from his mind to his mouth for 37 minutes. And there was no ums. It was very well reasoned and organized. And it just is a mark of someone who just knows his material inside out and has a lot of experience public speaking. I really aspire to get there. I also thought that he had an interesting way of starting the talk, which was through a listener or viewer survey, which is not something that everyone does, but it helps people examine their own beliefs because they just participated in a poll, which identified the core of his argument, which is that we don't have as strong belief about our code engineering as we do in medical studies. And I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Finally, I thought the structure of the talk overall was very well argued. So first he tore things down. So he made you suspect everything that you thought you knew about software engineering. And then he built you back up again at the end. So he gave you some positive things to end on. And I think that's always a good idea. So that's it. That's my learning. And I hope to someday give as good a talk as this was.